Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. Our passage last week was the first to introduce major conflict into the ministry of Jesus. His growing ministry was beginning to collide with the established teaching and traditions of the people. And it so happened that he was teaching a large crowd of people gathered in the house of Simon Peter when he said something that only God can say. He declared a man's sin to be forgiven, a claim which no person has the authority to make because sin is a grievance between God and man. And so God alone can forgive sins. So why would Jesus say this? Can he speak for God? Does he think he's God? Is he God? Those are important questions to ponder, and they must be answered. The people can no longer remain neutral about the teaching of Jesus. He is now either a blasphemer and should be put to death, or he's telling the truth and actually has the authority to forgive sin between God and man. And if that's the case, then nothing could be more important than listening to and following Jesus. He knew what he was doing. He was forcing people to make up their minds. He was no longer just a nice, harmless teacher. His words have power. And he knew what the scribes were thinking about his words. Yet he didn't recant what he said, nor did he try to clarify or nuance his statement. Rather, he doubled down on what he said by confirming it with a physical sign. He said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. He then said to a paralytic, rise, get up and walk. And the man was healed of his physical condition. The spiritual condition of the man could not be confirmed by outward appearances, but the physical condition could be. Now, Jesus is claiming to have authority over both physical and spiritual health, though they could see the physical healing that took place, it would still take faith to believe what Jesus said about the man's sins. Were they really forgiven? This leaves the crowd bewildered. Is he a heretic or not? No heretic has ever had the authority to heal someone like that. And scratching their heads, they they weren't ready to confess their faith. They could only say, we have never seen anything like this. Well, that passage is the first of five short episodes that Mark has arranged in a row, which describe various conflicts Jesus has with the old guard, with Jewish tradition. The first was a theological controversy. And the next two, which are both in our passage today, cover practical matters related to food 
he was criticized for both feasting and fasting. The passage opens with words reminiscent of the time Jesus called his first disciples. Once again, he is walking alongside the Sea of Galilee and teaching to crowds. He didn't just stay at home letting the crowds come to him. He went out and made calls on people. As he encountered them, he taught them. His message wasn't just for a select few. It, It wasn't a private affair. It was a message for the masses. And it just so happens that as he's walking along the sea, he comes upon a man working the tax booth. It's likely he was serving as a sort of customs agent, taxing transported goods. Land and poll taxes were collected directly by the Romans, but taxes on transported goods were contracted out to local collectors, most of whom in this region were ethnically Jewish, but probably not observant Jews, because any Torah-observant Jew would not be willing to conduct business with the pagan Gentiles because they were unclean. A typical Jewish person would have hated seeing that toll booth every time he walked by. The very presence of tax collectors in the Holy Land reminded them of the pagan Roman domination that was corrupting their land. And to see people of their own ethnicity occupying the tax booths on behalf of the enemy was horrible. It was treasonous to work for the enemy like that. And to make matters worse, they didn't just work for the bad guys, they were bad guys, they they were thieves. A tax collector's profit came from taking more from the people than will be paid to the government. And so it was a job that attracted ambitious people who were not averse to taking advantage of people, like a sleazy salesman or con artist. People probably averted their eyes when walking by the tax booth. But Jesus did not despise the man at the booth. He looked right at him and called out to him and invited him to be a disciple. We're told that his name is Levi, but he seems to be the same disciple known by the name Matthew. As I pointed out a few weeks ago, calling disciples like this was unusual because rabbis didn't recruit their own students. A student who wanted to study under a rabbi had to take the initiative and they had to pass examinations to prove their worthiness. But Jesus chose Levi to follow him for reasons known only to himself. Certainly Jesus has the authority to call whoever he wants for whatever reason he wants. It seems that his reasons for calling Levi have nothing to do with worthiness. Levi didn't first repent of his sinful past and straighten up his life and and demonstrate his morality to win the approval of Jesus. Rather, he, he was sitting at the tax booth when he was called. And Levi responded immediately to the authority of Jesus. He could not resist the call to discipleship. Perhaps to celebrate the call or to introduce Jesus to his friends, Levi hosted a dinner party at his house. It was full of his fellow tax collectors and sinners. The word translated sinners is the same one used in the Psalms 
for the wicked. The wicked are not occasional transgressors of the law, but people who stood fundamentally outside of it. In other words, Levi's friends weren't exactly the church type. Bless their hearts. They were the kind of friends you might be embarrassed to invite to church because there's no telling what they'll say or what they'll wear. But Levi wasn't embarrassed to bring them to Jesus. And Jesus was comfortable among them. In fact, look again at how Mark describes the scene. He refers to the people as reclining with Jesus. Seems as if Jesus is the real host. They are surrounding him. He's at the center. And the phrase reclining at table reflects a custom used for festive meals. This was a feast, one that perhaps anticipates the heavenly messianic banquet table at the end of time. Both are a meal of grace for undeserving people. Well, it just so happens that while this meal of grace was being enjoyed inside the house of Levi, standing outside the house, excluded from the feast, were the scribes of the Pharisees. They did not follow Jesus. They stood in judgment over him and questioned the behavior of Jesus to Jesus' disciples. They couldn't understand why he was eating with unclean people people who were blatantly undeserving of fellowship with a religious leader. They were unrighteous. It'd be one thing if the people had repented and cleaned up their act first. The Pharisees would have been happy to have heard Jesus call the sinners to repentance. But they were not happy to see Jesus accept them as they were. To them, this made Jesus unclean by association. And so they shared their concerns with the disciples of Jesus, which is a disrespectful and and cowardly thing to do. They should have brought their concerns to Jesus directly rather than talking bad about him to his disciples. But Jesus is not a coward, and he came to them with an answer. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is on a mission to meet people with great spiritual need. He's like a physician, healing people who are spiritually sick. And like an experienced physician, he's not afraid to help sick people. The Pharisees wanted people to abide by God's law, which is a good desire, but they expected perfect obedience to be acceptable and clean, which is going too far because it excludes anyone with any honesty, because all people are sinful and fall short of the glory of God. So at best, you only have people accepted into religious society who are deceived into thinking that they are good moral people. And the people who recognize that they're sinful and hopeless are rejected by religious society until they can manage to get their act together. But why do the Pharisees act that way? I mean, it would be absurd for a doctor to refuse to treat his patients until they get well first. But unfortunately, that happens. There are plenty of people who think that they can't go to church until they get their act together and clean up their lives. But that's the opposite of the gospel. Christianity isn't about being morally perfect people. 
Yes, we are to repent and forsake evil and amend our lives in accordance with God's word, but we do those things not to gain the favor of Jesus, but because we have the favor of Jesus. The gospel teaches that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us before we loved him. The love of Jesus is demonstrated in this meal with tax collectors and sinners because he fellowships with them prior to them cleaning up their lives. And this is purposeful. Jesus said that he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees thought they were righteous by the works of the law that they sought to follow. But if you were to categorize all of the world's people into two types, righteous and sinner, the first category would have only one name, Jesus. Everyone else belongs in the category of people Jesus came to save. But the Pharisees made a categorical error. They thought they were righteous. And so they didn't recognize their need for a physician. But in reality, they were just as much in need of salvation as the people sitting around the table with Jesus. But by condemning this gospel meal, the Pharisees were actually condemning themselves because their critical hearts prevented them from fellowshipping with Jesus. They were on the outside looking in. Now, this passage illustrates what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The tax collectors and sinners did not receive fellowship through works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. The Pharisees who pursued righteousness through the law by works are unable to reach their goal. Instead, they've stumbled over the rock of offense, Jesus but whoever believes in Jesus will not be put to shame. There were, there were two conflicts in our reading today, both about food. The Pharisees criticized Jesus for who he ate with. And then other people criticized Jesus for eating when others fasted. Now, the Torah only requires one day of fasting a year on the day of atonement. But over time, it became practice to fast when lamenting national tragedies, such as the destruction of the temple by Nebuchadnezzar, or during times of crisis, such as war, plague, drought, or famine. And people could have self-imposed fasts for any number of personal reasons. Now, by the time of Jesus, fasting became an important sign of religious commitment. The rabbis often referred to fasting as an affliction of the soul. Why would you want to afflict the soul? As a sacrificial act of piety. So the more you fasted, the more holy you appeared. And so the Pharisees got into the habit of fasting twice every week 
It was a feature of the religious devotion. John the Baptist and his followers also had a regular practice of fasting. But now people were starting to realize that the new, Jewish, the new Jesus movement didn't take its religious observance seriously enough. You might have noticed that this criticism isn't coming from Pharisees, but commoners trying to distinguish between religious groups. They seem to think that if Jesus wants to be taken seriously, then he ought to pay greater attention to the use of fasting. But fasting is related to mourning and repentance. This is no time to fast. The Messiah is present with his people and doing ministry. He's on a mission to bring about salvation. Jesus doesn't have fasting on his mind, but feasting. His ministry is one of joy. And so the imagery he brings up is that of a wedding celebration. A wedding celebration was a seven-day event. Friends and guests had no responsibility but to enjoy the festivities. There was an abundance of good food and wine, as well as song, dance, and fun, both in the house and on the street. Who would fast during a wedding? With this comment, Jesus compares himself to a bridegroom. This is an association with God. God, in numerous places throughout the Old Testament, such as the passage we read in our Old Testament reading, is the husband of his people. Jesus here conceives of himself as the bridegroom, and he is. The church is his bride, and he loves the church. He loves his people. But he recognizes that he's facing powerful opposition, and the day is coming when he will be taken away. And on that day, it will be proper to fast. So he doesn't discount the practice of fasting. It's just not the right time. Well, sure enough, the day comes when he's taken away from his disciples and crucified. On that day, it was appropriate to fast, and he did, even refusing the wine mixed with myrrh that they offered him. And his disciples mourned on that day and after. But then on the third day, it was no longer appropriate to mourn. Some of the first things Jesus did in his resurrected body was eat with his disciples. These two scenes related to feasting and fasting highlight how different the ministry of Jesus is to the established tradition of the day, which is what the final verses are about in our passage. They are the first parables recorded in Mark and contain two illustrations at the same point. It's foolish to put unshrunk cloth on an old garment because it'll tear away and make a worse hole in its place. And it's foolish to put new wine in an old wineskin, because once the fermentation gets going, the old wineskin will burst. Jesus is the new patch and the new wine. The point he's making is that he is not an attachment, addition, container, or appendage to the status quo. He cannot be simply integrated into the existing religious structures of the day. He is something entirely new. He isn't something to add onto your busy life either. A lot of people fill up their schedules and agendas and only then try to squeeze Jesus in where they can. That's like sticking a new unshrunk patch on old clothes. It doesn't work that way. 
Jesus wants to build our lives up on him from the ground up. To not continue with business as usual, but to join the wedding celebration as a new vessel that can contain the gospel of Jesus. That's what we are called to do. By the grace of God, he will enable us to do just that. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 